0: Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. The traditional football signing period starts this week, but since the inception of the early signing period a few years ago, what used to be a February recruiting bonanza is now sort of an afterthought. Most of the top players have signed. Most teams are close to having a full class. There is just not a ton of intrigue and news out there. So instead of previewing signing day 2021, we're jumping ahead to the class of 2022. Joining me to talk about what to look for in recruiting over the next 8 to 10 months is Bud Elliott from 24-7 Sports. We'll ask Bud about how the class is shaping up from position strength, best prospects, uh, teams already off to a fast start, and what a return to normal as the country hopefully begins to pull out of the pandemic means to the recruiting class of 2022. We'll also chat about the coaching news at Tennessee and UCF. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Westwood One Podcast, Apple Podcasts, just about anywhere you like to get your podcast. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating and a good review. It helps college football fans find us and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast is Bud Elliott from 24-7 Sports. Uh, Bud you know, he kind of cuts his, cut his teeth in recruiting. Uh does a lot of you may know him from his work on uh his past life as uh sort of the guru of of, of Florida State football, but he's doing 24/7 sports now. Uh leads the recruiting side but also knows a lot about college football. So we're going to get into signing day this week, but really You know, signing day, bud, is no longer in February. The traditional signing day is just sort of like, you know, tying up loose ends. So instead of bringing you on to talk about what's going to happen tomorrow, we're recording this on a Tuesday afternoon. A lot of that stuff will already be done by some people. Listen, we're not just going to jump ahead. We're going to jump way ahead. We're going to look start looking towards 2022 class because really that's what schools and coaches are doing. They're looking towards 2022. So, bud, thanks for coming on. And um I'll throw this – let's start it with this angle. When you start looking at the 2022 class of players – is there anything notable that stands out as far as positions as far as as far as far regions that players maybe are you know maybe maybe a state that's a little stronger than other what as your first year as you start taking taking uh a a summary of the 2022 class what are some of the things that stand out
1: So i you mentioned get, getting a look at these guys and, and to be honest like that that's something i wish we could have done uh, in in <laughs> maybe that's a place cases, to start yeah yeah, like, like in many cases, a lot of times the, the last time that we've seen these guys was before their, like before their junior year, right? The, 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 summer before their junior year, if we were able to see them at all. So in some cases, we haven't seen them, you know, since, since the summer of, of 2019 or in, in the fall of 2019 because of, of when the pandemic hit and, uh, you know, how many camps and combines and whatnot were canceled. And, and some states didn't even play high school football. Uh, but, as far as, as looking at the 2022 class, uh, there are some guys, uh, about whom we already feel very confident, right? Uh, Ohio State got a huge recruiting win. Now they're going to have to hold on to him, but I, I think they feel pretty confident that they will in, in South Lake Carroll's Quinn Ewers and Ewers is, um, probably the highest rated quarterback since Trevor Lawrence. I think that's pretty good. And it, it's still really <laughs> early. And, and so like who knows where he'll end up. Um, rank rankings can and luckily do change I think they need to be dynamic to reflect the the nature that you're recruiting you know <laughs> high school kids and, and those kids keep growing and you know the the lottery that is puberty uh, but yours is is really really good I mean athletic good build throws well on the run very accurate uh, tears up elite level competition in an elite state like Texas and obviously Texas is going to want them now, now that Steve Sarkeeson is is in Austin, uh, but uh, so far Ohio State and Ryan Day managed to hold on to him. So that's been a a big storyline. Wh- wh- whether he'd go back to Texas, wh- whether he would you know stick with Ohio State, we still have a whole year to go.
0: Right, and he was a te- he was a Texas commit under Herman for a little while, and then flipped to Ohio State as things sort of went sour at Texas this past season, though before Herman got fired, it should be noted before Herman got fired. So I think that's why there's a sort of this renewed hope that Sark can go in there and say, Hey, I was the guy who did all this great stuff at Alabama and that might win him back.
1: I completely agree. Um, I would say another position or another kid that stands out for get the positions. Uh, Travis Hunter is, is a corner out of Collins Hill, which is in Suwanee, Georgia. And he he is probably the best high school football player in the country right now. I understand having viewers over him because of positional value. Obviously the quarterback is going to impact the game more than a cornerback will, but Hunter is probably the best offensive and defensive player in the state of Georgia right now. And that probably includes the dudes who were seniors this year in, in Georgia. Like he, he dominated both sides of the ball in a way that is just, it's just rare. Uh He's actually committed to Florida State right now, which is kind of shocking because Florida State has you know had a bad year and then had a couple of bad years in a row, actually. Uh but he's a longtime Florida State fan. I believe he's originally from Florida, and they I don't want to say lucked into that one, but his relationship with defensive best coach Travis or uh, uh, Marcus Woodson uh has been uh, uh has been really, really positive for the Knowles there. As far as positions. I, I think this is a very nice defense year, and, and particularly Ralph, if you need to go out and get yourself a a dude with like a miles Garrett type build not maybe as rocked up you know as Garrett was, but in terms of the six foot five big time wingspan you can project the player to play at 260 plus in college uh, and yet still be the edge I mean Jamar Stewart from uh, from South Florida is, is one I really like. Uh, we also there's a couple kids out of Texas who I feel, are very good uh, a white out of Philly is is a big one um, there's a, a guy who's actually only a four star right now but I, I think he's going to be in serious five star consideration uh, for Katie, Texas who just committed to A&M a couple days ago in Malik Silla that his, his film to me looks looks awesome he's, he's 6'6" 230 so I I will say that the uh, the, the defensive end position particularly the, the bigger DNs, uh are they're, they're plentiful this year, which I know programs across the nation are pretty happy to see.
0: So I uh, just did a very quick aside about Miles Garrett because you say like, you know, maybe not quite Miles Garrett because Miles Garrett in, in a world where there's a lot of jacked up dudes, right? <laughs> like like mm-hmm. we, we, we live in a world where we see a lot of big and, you know, jacked up guys. Miles Garrett is still one of the few players who when I interviewed him at Texas A&M when I think he was going into his junior year, it still startled you of like, holy cow, like that dude looks like he was created by a, a god. Like that—that that is unbelievable. Like I don't know if that – like that looks almost beyond human. He is like the perfect manifestation of a dude, right? Miles yeah, G- it, yeah. He looked
1: different even in high school. I mean like that was like, whoa, you're in high school?
0: That's <laughs> – Yeah.
1: Hmm, okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway, so, so a good defensive end year. Um, uh, any positions where you look at and say, you know, you mentioned Ewers at quarterback. Let's just stick. Quarterbacks always are the most interesting thing. So let me just stick on quarterback for a second here. And that is, um, you, you talk about Ewers your initial you know and obviously this could change we got a full year for guys to develop but again we usually have a a fair fairly good sense of where the class is going at this point about 10 month, 10 months out of of them actually signing 9 9 to 10 months out of them actually signing how does that rest of the quarterback class look
1: it, it's looking pretty good i i think we will see a decent bit of shuffling in the rankings uh, i believe our next class of 2022 update will come uh, either in February or, or March. I just want to make sure we get it right before we put it down. We, we usually do uh, monthly rankings adjustments, but, but but the next one we do for 22 will, will be a pretty big one, obviously, because we, we haven't done one uh, in several months, mostly focusing on transfer ratings and uh, in the class of 2021. Uh, but Gunnar Stockton just committed to Georgia. He was a former South Carolina commit uh, when, uh, when South Carolina lost Will Muschamp. Uh, I think it's kind of weird, like they lose Will Muschamp, and yet they... Lose a quarterback because those two things are kind of inversely related <laughs> right. usually. Yeah, that is uh, at least in well Muschamp's career. Uh, but Stockton went, went ahead and flipped to Georgia, extremely productive passer out of the state. Uh, maybe not quite as projectable a prospect as, as yours, but uh, still somebody who I think can operate Georgia's offense very well. Uh, Walker Howard's already committed to LSU. Kid at Lafayette who's a nice player. It's it's a pretty good quarterback year. Um, I think I mean you clearly have the one kid in yours who who just stands out but I I think this actually could be a better quarterback year than we had this year. And this year was was a pretty decent one. It wasn't, you know, Trevor Justin JT, but it, it was it was pretty
0: nice. Is there a place where you're going as far as positions and you say, uh we're still waiting for some guys to emerge here. This is a pos- a place you're looking for uh to get some immediate help. Uh, you might not be on maybe one or two players uh be looking here.
1: You know, I I, I think I want to see more out of the linebacker position overall. There's there's a couple guys who, who stand out early. Uh, Ohio State has a nice pair in Gabe Powers and, and CJ Hicks. Um, we we have uh, what's his name uh, Harold Perkins out, out of Texas as the number one backer in the country. But really beyond that, like there's more guys who, who I I want to see in, in in person. I mean, you have a lot of dudes who, who rack up crazy stats, but I I'd like to see more. Uh, these outside linebackers to see how they move, to see how they cover in space, right? And if you have a a really good high school linebacker who can cover for the most part, teams just aren't picking on him. And so it it can be difficult to, to evaluate that solely off film. A lot of times I I get a lot of out of of some of these camp settings where where you put some of these backers in space because college is becoming more of a space game. Um, I, I also think we have some, some questions about the depth of the corner position. All these teams are looking to take so many good corners and, and there's just only you know, so much supply. Hmm. Um, I think we'll have kids emerge, but there's, we, we, we already, we already mentioned Hunter and Damani Jackson, who, who's committed to the USC is, is, is a no doubter as well. But beyond that, I think there's a lot of disagreement with the ranking services as well as to who they think is, is best. And, and like I mentioned at the linebacker position, I mean, if you have a really good, really good high school corner, for the most part, teams aren't throwing at them. You know, and so getting to see these guys in seven on seven, I've been two seven on sevens in the last two weekends. That's been pretty instructive, to be honest, to get a real feel for how big these guys are in person, how, how well they move? And, and um, just I still think seeing guys in person matters. And, and that's been nice to be able to get back on the road some.
0: Um, so, OK, there's a, you opened up a couple of different lines there. I'm, let's stick with this one on the corners. Um, do our schools Recruiting corners similarly to the way NFL teams draft them. In other words, just in bulk. If you watch the NFL draft, I mean, at a certain point, it simply becomes, okay, what's the best corner we can grab here? And we're just going to grab as many of them as possible because we'll, there are so many. A, we need a lot of them on the field these days. And, and B, you know, if we take a lot of them, maybe one or two of them will hit. Are, have we moved to that point where just corners get valued up a little more? Hence, they are recruited in bulk.
1: They definitely have been valued up some. Um, and I think most of that is related to like in the NFL, college offenses are becoming better at instead of just running it like a holistic, you know, concept based offense. They're becoming better at just picking on one guy mm-hmm. over and over again. You saw this some in the national title game. You know, you, you, you saw Clemson and Ohio State both pick on each other's, others guys who, who really can't cover all that well in that semifinal game. So making sure that you have enough guys on the field who aren't ducks. I mean, you, you know the phrase, find the duck, mm-hmm. right? And to make sure you don't have have too many ducks on the field, I, I, I think that's that's really been a key. So we are seeing programs put a greater emphasis on that. But it's also, Ralph, I think related to uh, the necessity to play more nickel and more dime, dime packages where, where you have five and six defensive backs on the field at any one time. And if, if you're going to run that, I mean, you you, you can't just carry 12 dBs anymore because some of these programs are carrying, you know, 17 dBs. You, You need it.
0: So you mentioned seeing people in person, and that's been a theme, right? Because, well, I mean, in a lot of ways, A, there has been some high school football shut down. There has been less of it. Uh, coaches haven't been allowed on the road. I don't know how much even the recruiting analysts have been traveling as much. Um Opportunities for camps have been limited. We mentioned, we talked about, in fact, when we you and Barton, Barton Simmons, uh, your former colleague who's now at Vanderbilt University, and we'll talk about that. Um When you and Barton were on, we talked about how much that this 2021 class was going to be impacted. But really, while there's a lot of focus on that, it could be the 2022 class that is... More greatly impacted or that we're going to have to sort of like play catch up when things hopefully return to more normal in the spring and summer. So when you start talking about the 2022 class and how it's going to be impacted by this somewhat lost year to the pandemic and hopefully we start getting back to normal in the summer.
1: It, it most definitely will. Uh, I, I think we're going to be rather conservative in, in terms of handing out you know, really high star ratings uh, at first, just to make sure we, we, we have it right. I, I know that's the mindset of a lot of the guys on, on the rankings council, and we want to make sure we do a good job with that. Uh, but in some cases, you're going to be seeing some of these guys for the first time. Now, that, that happens every year because kids emerge out of nowhere seemingly at times. But I think you're going to be seeing a greater percentage of these players for the first time or, or for the first time in a while. So it's, it's going to matter a whole lot. The, the other thing, Ralph, is I, I think offers – and spots might be a little bit uh, slow to develop this year because of something that I think has been. Uh, I've tried to cover it for for months now, and, and I've written about it. I don't know, probably four or five times. But COVID bonus year seniors, so that the guys who mm-hmm. were seniors in twenty twenty who mm-hmm. are electing to come back for twenty one, they they don't count against your cap of eighty five players, right? They're basically they're in the accounting math. They don't they don't count. Mm-hmm. But for twenty twenty two. And twenty twenty three and twenty twenty four seasons, all these guys who get these bonus years, the NCAA has not passed anything that says that they don't count against the cap.
0: Yeah, and I don't think and they're I, going to. I, I think that they right. might be squeezed to, but but the general sense of that is I'm sorry to interrupt you, but but just you know, from talking to people is like they don't really want to start messing with the caps, and when we saw also I should say with the caps. Twenty five per year cap, eighty five total cap. You can't go more than twenty five signees per year. You can't go more than eighty five uh, scholarship players on your roster. But these seniors coming back next year don't count against either the twenty five or the eighty five.
1: Correct, right? And, and you know, guys on the already on the roster would never count against the, the twenty five, right? But they do like they, they do count against your overall eighty five cap. What this is going to cause, though, is. I got a lot of buddies who work at small schools, and they're telling me, hey, our our admin is not going to support any kind of rule that says go above the 85 cap because we we can't afford to to pay pay for them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, For 100 scholarships. So let's say you have 10 guys who want to come back. Now, you as a school don't have to let them back. That's kind of a sneaky thing people don't know. Like Mm -hmm. the player can say, yeah, I want to use my extra year. And you as the school can say, "Ah, well, good luck, but you're not using it here. Mm -hmm. Right. Or feel free but to if, walk,
0: feel free to be a walk-on, right? Sure.
1: Yeah, exactly. Although, I, can you be, can you become a walk-on at the school at which
0: your scholarship? Well, you could, I think you can give up your scholarship if you choose to. Okay. Yeah. If you choose to, you can, you can give up your scholarship and play as a non-scholarship player. I believe that's the case. I probably have to check that, but I believe that's the case.
1: That's interesting. That, that, I, I think if, if that's the case, we'll, we'll probably see that a couple times. Um, but like, let's say you have, as a school, 10 players who want to come back, and you actually want to take them back, and the 85 cap is not expanded. That's going to be 10 fewer addition, like addition new players that you could bring on through recruiting. So you're probably going to see quite a few schools sign smaller classes than normal. And that's before we even take into account the fact that schools are already signing smaller classes than they used to because they're, they're taking advantage of the transfer portal. Mm-hmm. I mean, Oklahoma, Penn State. Florida State, a couple other ones, they signed like an average of of 16 high schoolers this year because they're leaving seven, eight spots open for for transfers. And that's probably not going to be a yearly thing for each school. But I think overall, uh, there's a pretty good shot that there are going to be fewer high school players signed, at least until we get through all this COVID math, which will take two or three years if certain rules are passed.
0: So the other avenue that you opened up there when you mentioned um, it's it's Damani Jackson is the corner, right from California? Yep. Who's already committed to USC. That's a big deal. Uh, now one thing I'll mention on the 2021, USC also signed Corey Foreman, who is by some accounts the number one player in the 2021 class. Uh, does 24 seven have his, have, have Corey Foreman as number one?
1: No, we, we actually have him, I believe, as number two. Okay. Uh, we. We have JT as number one.
0: Okay. And, and ultimately, listen, I mean, if you're one, one, two or three, that's the type of player USC needs to keep, uh, and has sort of, you know, hasn't done as good a job as keeping that kid in state. So it's a big deal that USC not just, you know, signed Foreman, but got a commitment from Damani Jackson, who is sort of considered a top. He's a five star sort of top five to 10 type player. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Yeah. At least at this early stage, he's he's a dominant player.
0: Gotcha. So, which leads me to this. So that seems like that might be a good sign for USC heading into heading into the 2022 class. They they sort of finished strong in 2021. Uh, everything is always a little uncertain when it comes to Clay Helton and his status at USC. But let's start with USC and then maybe branch off into some other teams that have gotten off to fast starts.
1: Sure. So USC is obviously doing a really good job. But the main thing, Ralph, with USC was they finished 64th in the 2022 recruiting class, which was, you know, pretty bad, obviously. Um, And they they made some important staff changes to address that. They they had some new guys in with some better Southern California connections. They they got some guys who were just better recruiters on that staff and they were were able to uh, to, to get off to a nice start this year. They're expected to close tomorrow uh, or Wednesday, whenever we release this. Um, with Rajon Davis, who, who's a top, top 40 player for us at the linebacker position. So they're going to have a really nice class uh, this year, and they are off to a nice start. They already have Damani Jackson. As you mentioned, that they have, have Fabian Ross out of Vegas in another corner. Um, they already have a quarterback in Devin Brown, and they actually have, have a, a center prospect from ING, Dylan Lopez, who I usually see all the IMG kids, but I've not actually seen him yet, so I don't really know, you know how good he is necessarily. Uh, he's a three-star so far. On the composite but the usc has gotten off to a really nice start and um look I, I think that you can have oregon carry carry the pac-12 in some respects but the pac-12 does look better if the program that most people out there consider the the program that needs to play up to its ceiling actually does so and who knows what will happen with clay helton if they have another year like they've been having uh, but the recruiting is is most definitely better and it is hard to mess up USC. They have right of first refusal on so many kids west of the Rockies. Like, like you, you should be a top five recruiting team pretty much every year.
0: But it did seem as if they were losing that a certain amount when, when you see a, a DJ Ungalele leave and go all the way across the country and he says things like, you know, I just. You know, feel like the, the quality of football is not what it needs to be in the Pac 12. And that reflects on USC and all all also regionally when Oregon dips into, into California so strongly and pulls out significant players. So, so I think you're right. I think USC needs to be sort of, Hey, we have, we've right of first refusal. That's what USC has always been great. But it had lost that a little bit over the last couple of years.
1: There's no doubt about it. I think that's. In large part, what was so important um, about getting those coaching changes made for the Trojans? Um, other teams that are off to fast starts in 2022, Ohio State is—they already have 10 commits, <laughs> including three composite five stars. I mean, who knows if these kids will stay? Yeah, and including Quinn, uh,
0: Quinn Ewers, who we, who we talked about earlier. Yeah,
1: yeah, qu- qu- Quinn Ewers is is is, uh, is going to stay five star. I'm, I'm like 99.99% sure on that. Uh, Jaheim Singletary is one of the best players in the state of Florida. They, they dip down to uh, Urban Meyer's old stomping grounds. And, and, and I guess I guess actually Urban's back now um, in a different, <laughs> different role. They're able to get him out, out of Jacksonville. They're off to a nice start as well at the receiver position uh, with with Caleb Burton, who's out of the state of Texas. So they, they have the number one receiver in the country from Texas, the number one quarterback in the country also uh, from Texas. So some work to be done there for for Steve Sarkeesian and Jimbo, uh, to be sure. So they're, they're off to a nice start. Uh, Penn State has actually done a really nice job in 2022. They already have eight commitments. All of them four stars are better so far. And uh, who else? Georgia, as we mentioned earlier, getting the quarterback. Four State, largely on on the back of, uh, of of Travis Hunter, has done a nice job, at least relative to the type of season they had. Um, they just picked up a, a legacy in Aaron Hester, who's a pretty solid player. And then they have a, a couple other guys in that class who we think will probably rise in the rankings, uh, just based on on the seasons that they just had, so it, they're off to a pretty solid start.
0: Let me and, let me let me stop yeah, you. On, let me stop you on Florida State. I'm sorry. I, I, I definitely want to get to BC and Halfley because they they sort of qualify as the you know who knew like oh wow like look at that. Um, but Florida State is um, um, a place where you know very well because you because you've been you know covering them for a long time and. I guess I don't want to get too deep into the weeds there because this could be a, a totally a podcast all of its own of what's wrong with Florida State and how does it come back. But do you see a path where Florida State can fix, can fix a lot of what needs to be fixed at Florida, Florida State simply by recruiting the way Florida State can recruit? For sure. Do you think uh, they just simply recruit their way out of this?
1: yeah, I think you have to as long as you you incorporate you know transfers uh, and patience within the 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 scope of recruiting. Um, when you make the decision to fire a coach after only two years in the early signing period era, you're basically committing to a long-term rebuild because we know for a fact that the classes these coaches sign when they only have two or three weeks to put them together, like we've seen in, in the early signing period era, because it used to be you had about eight weeks. You could at least kind of get to know some of these kids. Now you sign your contract and you're signing players the next week mm-hmm. and you don't know these guys. The, the attrition rates, the bus factor on these classes that these coaches signed in their first year, that kind of short season class they put together is through the roof. And when you sign a, co- when you fire a coach after only two years, that means you have two of those classes in a three year period. Mm-hmm. So your roster is going to be pretty bad for a while because your attrition your rates are going to be crazy. You, in some cases, some of these four stars you're getting, you're getting because other schools didn't want them. Maybe those schools or they didn't want them as much. Maybe they didn't like their competitive temperament or something about their character. Or maybe they, you know, maybe, maybe they saw the kid more recently and saw that he, he put on a bunch of bad weight or something like that. Um I, I think you'll see that. One of the lessons learned about the early signing period, and, and this certainly applies for state, is that you need to have some patience overall. That's not saying they made the wrong decision, but it's just it's a factor you have to consider as an administration when you do that. Uh, and so you're signing up for a longer term rebuild if you do decide to ask somebody after just two years.
0: And you, but you live in Florida, but I mean, this is is the damage done to the Florida State brand so bad that you have kids who? Normally would be, wow, that, that kid's, you know, Florida State will be in on that kid. Are you seeing like, wow, the Florida State doesn't even like, are they seriously in on this kid? Are kids showing any signs that like they're not taking Florida State as seriously as maybe they normally would have a couple of years back? Does, does the brand tarnish that quickly?
1: It, it certainly does. Um, particularly because with a new staff, I, I think more than half of these kids, the four State signed, they never saw in person. They never met in person. Because like the, the the new staff comes in, the pandemic hits. I don't think a lot of these kids knew who the heck Mike Norvell was. They don't watch much college football. They certainly aren't watching Memphis.
0: Right, right.
1: And so, you know, you got this new staff in there. That, they don't get to meet these guys in person. They, they try to form relationships over Zoom. I mean, we, we've seen this with, with all these new staffs, basically. Um, and when visits were shut down, it was pretty much, Impossible. I, I think that's why they elected to to only sign what fifteen or sixteen high school players, and and use nine or ten spots on transfers um, because they didn't have those relationships. This year so far, I, I have been surprised uh, at at how how well that this staff has been received because they still haven't had a chance to get out there and meet these guys in person and actually you know eyeball them, and meet their coaches and whatnot, but. Th- Part of it is because, because of the legacy factor. There, there are a lot of legacies in the state for FSU and some guys who just grew up as fans of Florida State of you know Jalen Ramsey and Jameis and Telvin Smith and those type dudes. Yeah, it's not that long
0: um, ago. It's not that long yeah, ago exactly. that things were really rolling. You would think it would go in an
1: opposite direction, right? That they would have still have some interest last year. And then because of the, the three-win season, you would have even less interest this year. But it seems like they've done a decent job in-house of counteracting that and, and selling their vision. Uh, over Zoom. So we're seeing increased interest so far this year.
0: Okay. So I cut you off there when you were going to mention an interesting team, because I kind of wanted you to throw at least one or two teams that are not the obvious ones when you say who's off to a great start. And you mentioned BC, which already has seven commits. Jeff Halfley, the former Ohio State defensive coordinator, had a pretty nice year last year. Um, but sometimes I I will say that a first year on the field can be a little deceiving, Uh, that could be a little fool's gold. You know, you get a couple of breaks, maybe have some players left over from the last staff that, you know, are upperclassmen that hit. And it's not always a a totally indicative of where that coach is going to go on the field. You in some ways could get more where you need to have that recruiting on the back end. If you want to, you, you can confirm what you might have seen on the field on the recruiting piece. And it looks like Jeff Halfley at a place that doesn't necessarily recruit top fifteen, even top twenty classes, might be on his way to maybe a top thirty class.
1: I thought like they did a really nice job of evaluating players in the 2021 class. And then they had several kids decommit who they, I don't want to say found, but but were willing to pull the trigger on an offer, you know, very early in the process. Uh they ultimately those kids decommitted and went went to schools with I don't want to say better schools, but you know schools that have had more more football success. maybe are are a level up, including Uh, Trevin Wallace, the the linebacker out of Georgia, who's a standout player on both sides of the football and also a track guy. Um, And he was very much in five-star consideration for us down the stretch. He was a Boston College commit for a while. And then kind of the bigger boys came calling and he decommitted. But I think that speaks well of BC's uh, identification and offering process. They are already off to a fast start as well this year with, with seven commits as you said, and they, they, they're they not afraid to trust their own their own formula, right? They're, they're offering kids that we don't have any stars on yet. They, they seem to do their own thing, and, and it, it's their process uh, has shown good results. In fact, I think if you look at uh, probably the majority of kids, Boston College offered probably went up in terms of star rating uh, after the BC offer, which means we got to see more on them. So BC was – uh, was correct in taking that risk. If if you if you use our evaluations and our star process to uh, to judge their results, which you know, maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't. Um, but th- I think I think he's doing a very nice job there. But to your point, if you look at Bill Connolly's second order win stats, which says okay, based on how you played in these games, what, what would your record be if you played them a bunch of times? BC finished six and five. Their second order wins were four and a half, mm-hmm. so they were you know a win and a half worse. Uh, on the second order win stuff than their actual record, which does indicate they had some pretty good luck. We'll see if if they can either play better or keep that level of luck going forward. Uh,
0: I want to hit on another Now, again, it to say like your 18th, your class is 18th in the country on February 3rd. I think it is today um, is, is, you know, who knows what exactly that means. However, I am curious about what Maryland is doing because, you know, even in this past class, yet again, Maryland sort of swooped in and stole a high four, low five star player away from a, you know, an SEC school. Um, they have five commits for 2022. Again, that puts them at number 18. I don't know exactly what that means, but. It does seem like there could be – there has always been this thought that like there's a high ceiling there at Maryland because the the DMV area is just teeming with talent. You just dip into Virginia and you could even like go not too far into the Carolinas and there's just so much talent in that corridor that maybe there's some untapped potential there for Maryland. You could even reach up into New Jersey if you're Maryland and to Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, early read on. You know, it's only it's only year two of Loxley, Loxley, but early read on what they're doing recruiting wise. And do you say, and is there reason for optimism?
1: I, I certainly think there is reason for optimism. Um, I, I, I was not a big believer in the Mike Loxley hire uh, personally because it, it his results at, at prior stops on the field coaching uh, were were just so bad.
0: Yep, I agree. I mean, it was very
1: it was hard to overlook that, mm-hmm. and and I don't know that you should overlook that personally. Uh, but Maryland they they went two and three this year they probably should have been three and two I think they were a little bit unlucky in in some of their games um, they they probably should have beaten Rutgers to be honest and, and they were right there uh, for a time with Indiana Mike Loxley recruiting wise I really never have any questions about him the guy's an excellent recruiter he knows how to get it done he has a ton of relationships in you know, in in the DC in the DMV in the Baltimore area Um I mean, like he he's gonna get some talent there to Maryland. My only real question was could could he coach it? I think he's assembled a pretty solid staff there as far as coaching, and we'll see what they're able to do. Um The issue is that division. If you stick Maryland in the West, I'd feel a lot better about it. Yeah. <laughs> that they have to play in the East means there's a ceiling. Like they're are they ever gonna finish better than than what, fourth in the East? It seems unlikely but possible I guess.
0: Yeah, all things have to sort of fall together like it did for Indiana this year where you have, you know, Penn State in an in a, an anomalous year, Michigan in a in a down year, Michigan State in a down year and all of a sudden you take you, you rocket shit rocket ship up. But you're right. That is a job that is going to be dependent on your competition. There are other places, there are other schools there that are going to have to come back to you to a certain degree before you to take a, a big step forward. Let me do one more thing here with you on this topic and then we'll we'll take a quick break and then we'll switch it over to something a little more current, and that is. Listen, I understand Georgia's always got great players, and when I say the state of Georgia, the state of Florida, the state of Texas, those are where the great players come from. But when I when I when I ask it, is there a state? Is there a particular region? You know, we saw this a couple of years back. I think Iowa was particularly stacked in a recent year, and it turned out that was a good year for the Hawkeyes, right? The Hawkeyes were able to 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 load up a little more and and end up building a couple of years off of that. Is there? Uh, one of the, it could be one of the prominent states like Georgia or Florida, or maybe one of the ones a little outside what we know as the, the, the places where there's always a mountain of talent. Is there a state or two in 2022 where you go, boy, this is a year where that in-state team could really clean up because that state is really loaded? You know, I, I
1: really haven't seen it yet. Um, on, on 2022. And I think part of that is because,
0: Again, you know, we're just we're, not seeing we're, we're people. Still, <laughs> right, right.
1: Yeah. Well, and also some states didn't play, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you, you you measure these states against what they normally normally put out, but you're also measuring them against one another. And I mean, we haven't seen some of these California kids since the fall of 2019. So, it's it's a hard thing to say for that. I will say for for this year, um, I thought North Carolina was was particularly loaded, and, and Mac Brown. And His staff—they you know, they really cleaned up. If you look at North Carolina for, for 2021, I mean that was that was extremely fortunate. But but that's also an area that is is improving rapidly. I mean, it, it, it's a growing metro area around Charlotte, and, and you got other major areas in that state as well that are producing a, a whole lot of talent. Uh, that that's that's a good place to be. I think Tennessee, very early read on this, but I, I, I do think Tennessee looks like it is pacing for more high end talent than it normally has, uh, which has got to be just painful to hear if you're a balls fan considering what they just did uh, to their coaching staff um, or what the staff did to itself, depending on, on who you believe. Um, <laughs> is,
0: is is that is, is that – you know, it's funny. Uh, my, my friend Ari Wasserman and, and Andy Staples were just mentioning this a little in passing on their recent pod about uh, – And again, this is something that would have been right up Barton's alley and probably a big reason why why Clark Lee took that job at Vanderbilt. Nashville is a booming place. I I wonder if Nashville is going to sort of have a look of... Maybe not full blown Atlanta, which is just maybe the best place in the country to recruit outside the Dallas area, uh, or maybe as good as the Dallas area at this point. Um, but is Nashville sort of a budding place because of the population boom around it? Are we looking at like maybe in a f- four or five years, Nashville will look more closer to what Atlanta looks?
1: Yeah. I mean, Nashville is, is certainly growing. Um, I, I think you're probably, Probably 10 years away, if it happens from from getting to where Atlanta is, because Atlanta is just so established, right? Right. And and they not only do you have the population boom, but you have the investment uh, in both the the public schools in terms of facilities and and, and what they pay coaches. We, We routinely lose high school coaches from the state of Florida to go coach in metro Atlanta.
0: Yeah, I because wrote a, I wrote about that a couple of years salaries. ago. Yeah, about why my Metro Atlanta has just boomed over the and because and also Metro Atlanta being so damn big, right? I met mean, you. Right. You can drive an hour and a half away from Atlanta, and you're still in sort of Metro Atlanta.
1: Right, one hundred percent. But I, I will say, Nashville is is certainly booming, uh, and you know, twenty four seven sports headquarters there as well. So that's that's pretty convenient. Um, it looks like a very nice year in in, in Tennessee for next year's class though so we'll see if the balls can do something like do something about that we'll see if barton over at vandy you know can can do something with that and uh like that's an interesting challenge of that job because you sort of have to figure out um it's almost a a baseball element in some ways where if you're recruiting college baseball you're recruiting against other college teams as well but you're also recruiting against okay are these guys going to come and get plucked by you know major league teams right? Mm-hmm. At Vandy, that's kind of the thing you, you have to guard against. You have to recruit against your other high academic schools, but you also have to make sure the kid you're signing is either A, has some reason to stick with you, right? If Alabama comes calling, if LSU comes calling, uh, or, 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 or B, like, is this the best kid that we can get who won't get that Bama or LSU offer? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, you have to find that sweet spot. That's, that's, that's a very difficult challenge.
0: Yeah. It's like interesting, you know, when Stanford really had it rolling, they were able to sell to the, the, not, the, and listen, no, nothing is quite like Stanford. Like, you know, every, there are other high academic schools which will sort of sell themselves as we're kind of like Stanford. Nothing is quite like Stanford as far as the difficulty of getting kids in there. But the vision you're selling is probably similar. And what they would sell to, to a lot of players, and I'll, and I'll, 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 I'll sort of colloquialize it uh, to a certain degree is if you're a great football player and you're super smart, just don't go to a football factory, right? Go, come be around, uh, like, really, sm- other really super smart people. Um, and you will, you can grow, you can be a great football player here and you can go to the NFL, but you can also work on your entrepreneurialism and you can work on all the other great parts of the aspects and interesting things that make you an interesting person beyond football. You can do all that here too. And I think Notre Dame has tried to sell that to a certain degree and has sort of taken some of that vision. And it's the reason why Kelly has done so well over the last couple of years. We're not going to target every kid. We're going to target the kids who can work here and who will embrace the culture here and sort of embrace what we have to offer. And I think that's what Vanderbilt's going to try to do. Hey, just don't go to the football factory, you know, come here and be with people who are more like you. Like the big brains who have, who have, who are more in, who are interested in things beyond football. And that sounds a little condescending when you talk about the other schools, but that's sort of what you're trying to get at. You're trying to get at those kids who, who think a little bit beyond just football. And it'll be interesting to see if Vanderbilt can, can tap into that while also still being in the SEC, which is a monster, right? It's one thing to do it at Stanford. It's another thing to do it in the SEC where everybody's got, you know, bigger, bigger and better facilities than you.
1: And, I mean, they also have a, they've got a long ways to climb. This right. probably will not be very quick at, at Vandy, given the fact that, I mean, this Vandy team we just saw, uh, by the power ratings, it was one of the worst SEC teams in the last 40 years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, like they've got a lot, like, they, they could make massive improvements just to go from terrible to bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, But it, you're exactly right as far as the recruiting approach, Ralph. I, I think that. You largely nailed it there. The one thing that killed Stanford, I think, is the early signing period. Mm-hmm. David Shaw was very vocal about this. If you recall, you know, five, six, seven years ago, when the early signing period idea was, was being bandied about, he was probably the most vocal anti-signing, anti-early signing period coach out there. And the reason is, at least at the time, uh, Stanford did not give admission decisions to kids that early. Right. And so they, they would wait. Like Stanford would oftentimes be one of the last offers to come out. Uh, it would be one of the last schools to accept commits and, and, uh, and a lot of times their guys wouldn't know if they were going to get into school until right before traditional national signing day in, in early February, like tomorrow. Um, with the early signing period, I, I think that is, that's really hurt them. I, I did some analysis on that earlier this year and it, it's hurt. Vanderbilt does not have that problem. So like that is definitely, uh, one advantage that they have. But like you said, no, nowhere, you know, is nowhere is Stanford.
0: Okay. So we're going to take a quick break here on the AP top 25 college football podcast, talking with Bud Elliott from 24 seven sports. We're going to shift this away from you brought up Tennessee. And so Tennessee will also lead to UCF. And that's sort of the news of the, the week where what that higher and where UCF might be going. So we'll finish it up with a little UCF Tennessee talk right after this on the AP top 25 college football podcast. <laughs>
1: all podcast consumers, Rich Eisen here. So often aspiration comes from inspiration with titans of industry being those torchbearers. With guests from the world of news, business, sports and entertainment, my new show is going to give you their most in-depth first-hand stories that focuses on the humble beginnings and humbling moments that we can relate to in our own lives. The podcast is called Just Getting Started with me, Rich
0: Eisen. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. We're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast, joined by Bud Elliott from 247 Sports. So we did all the recruiting talk and talked about the year, uh, the 2022 class. Let's talk about some of the things that have happened recently. I haven't had like the last time I cut a show. Josh Heupel was not yet the Tennessee coach, though it was sort of heading that way. Um, I don't want to rehash too much old news here, but... It was surprising. <laughs> it was it was a little surprising that they landed on Hypo because again, you know, why would you have a six six or seven day search when you could have just brought Hypel with you on the plane if you were Danny White? Um, um however let, let's think about from this angle, bud. Cause again, you, you now live in Orlando. You're a Florida guy a lot of your life, but you now live in Orlando. So you, you've got an idea of what UCF is and the power of UCF. And one of the things that got posed to me when Hypo got hired online was like, you know, isn't UCF a better job? And. Uh, yes and no kind of depending on what your perspective is like you're going to make a lot more money at Tennessee and the ceiling to compete for national championships because you're in the SEC is different when it comes to the Tennessee job but right now UCF is primed is in far better position to be successful comparative to its competition um if you're I mean it is it a no brainer for Josh Heipel to have left this job? And, and who are some of the names that you think of? You know, I know that's not necessarily your forte, but you're down there that you think of that. Hey, this could be a good person to, to, to step into UCF.
1: Yeah. So I, first of all, I, I do think it's absolutely a no brainer for, for Heupel to take the Tennessee job. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and I do. The too, reason why, just, but just to just go on the record there. So.
1: Yeah, like like there's there's no doubt you, you take that job because that that's that's truly life changing money. Um, I think you take that job knowing full well that the odds you get fired in four years are really high.
0: Yeah,
1: right. You're kind of babysitting them through what is going to be a very tough transition, hoping to score some points and sell some tickets. And maybe I mean like clearly you're not planning on that, but you got to realize that might be what occurs. And then you'll also walk away with twenty five million dollars guaranteed, maybe more if these sanctions are as bad as some people think they might be because there's that kicker in his contract that says he he gets what, another year or two, I think. Yeah. I think so. uh, Right. That's uh, kind of standard. Right. Yep. So the reason why he wasn't on the plane with Danny White at first is because it's very obvious he wasn't first choice. Mm -hmm. Now all all ADs say that like they always get their first choice and uh, he was the only person who's offered the job. Uh, As our friend, Dan Wilkins says, nobody's ever offered the job until they tell you they're going to accept it. Right. So, (laughs) you know, um, but I think it was it was smart for him to leave. And I think it probably is fairly illuminating on Tennessee's process and, and who who was not interested in, in Tennessee, you know, at, at this time. For UCF, though, like that, that's a hell of a job. Uh, you, you have a very hungry fan base, a, a fan base that, that donates pretty well, a school that I mean charges its students a, a lot in student fees. So they're fairly flush with cash. They just got I believe five million in, in combined buyout between Danny White and uh, Josh Heupel.
0: A lot of students too. That school is enormous.
1: Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's like fifty k, right? Yeah, it, it, it's, yeah, it's something along yeah.
0: those lines. Yeah, it's the largest university w- in the state of Florida. Right? It's the largest as far as as, as far right. as uh, student body, I believe, in the state of Florida.
1: It, it, yeah, it, it's it's one of the biggest in the country, I believe. Mm-hmm, um, I is. think Penn State system might be larger. Ohio
0: um, State and Arizona State are, I, I think, the two others.
1: Okay. As far as who I would go get, um, I think you have to realize what your ident- identity is as a brand. Uh, that They've run a wide open, very fast paced, exciting type of offense and won a lot of games doing so. I I don't think you can go away from that. I don't think being in Florida, you should go away from that. I think that's how you should probably operate, given, given the amount of speed that this state produces. Uh, two names I, I would look at. Uh, one, Jeff Levy. Who's currently the offensive coordinator for Lane Kiffin at Old Miss? He he's uh, he was prior, you know he was at UCF. Yeah, he um, came there with hiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the other one and look, he may be in consideration for Tennessee. I I, I don't know. Uh, the other one I think I'd probably look at would be Rhett Lashley. He was the offensive coordinator at Miami. Did a nice job this year. They, they had a major turnaround. I mean, he's worked under Sonny Dykes. He's worked under Gus Malzahn. Um, did a nice job. Miami knows the state as far as recruiting. That that would make a lot of sense too. But I, I think it'll be somebody who is uh, up tempo, fast paced offense, and, and exciting because you, you still do have to sell, you know, sell tickets and win games.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I think that you they, they should stay close to their identity. I also think that they shouldn't get too and, and so. Quite frankly, Josh Heupel was a coach hired by Danny White because they were able to build in a pretty big buyout. And I think he looked at Hypol as somebody who wasn't going to do what Frost did, which was bail out in two years after he had a little bit of success. And I don't know if Hypol would have other in, without this situation coming up uh, and White moving over to Tennessee. They probably would have had a guy there for three years, and and it, he's already been there three years, and probably would have had him for at least a fourth. Um, I don't. Whoever the next AD is at UCF don't get lured into i want to make sure our guy stays for a while just get the best guy even if he's gone in 2 years just get just get the best guy i think that sometimes and i understand why danny white could feel a little burned and sort of say hey we are building this great thing here and i want a coach who's going to be committed for not maybe not the the super long term but at least longer than 2 years so that's why i'm going to you know Land on Josh Heupel as opposed to maybe some others. But I hope that the next AD doesn't get too caught up in that and just decides like, listen, I'm not going to like strap you with a huge buyout. We just want the best coach and we'll deal with it when that, when, it, when it comes in a couple of years, uh, if you've had two undefeated seasons and you want to move on, we'll deal with it then. But I don't think they don't be short term thinkers uh, or well, don't think of it as we want a coach who will stay. We just want a coach who will win. I mean, you, you think about some schools that have made that mistake. Well, right? Houston. Uh, hello, Bill Houston. Stewart. Bill Stewart was a situation one that too. Yeah. Um,
1: and we'll see about App State, right? Yeah. Uh, their, their, their recent in-house hire. I, I forgot the guy's name now, Sean but he was making a big deal about wanting to stay there.
0: Yeah, Sean um, Clark is a was a right. Am I get that. Getting that right, Sean Clark. I yeah, I think so.
1: Yeah. Um, I agree with you. Like UCF, unless it joins a conference, is an awesome job and a stepping stone job.
0: Yes. You can be both. It can be both. It can be both, and it'll be it'll attract a lot of really good people. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if there's even some Power Five coaches who are looking at that, going like that might be better than what I got. <laughs> so, like, because because I'll win if nothing else, I'll be able to win. I may not get paid, I I may only make as much, I may not get a big raise there, but at least I'll be in position to win, and then I'll work on the raise later.
1: Right, one hundred percent. I I think the buyout thing too is I think you can get a really good coach there even by putting a a big buyout on them because most of these teams
0: who you'd want to leave UCF for,
1: they have the cash to buy you out.
0: (laughs) That's a good point too. Right. Right. So let me, let me tip this over to, to a, a broader conversation on Tennessee. This will be the last thing I'll ask you on because I think the, the state of Tennessee, we've talked so much about that. If I, if I took every nickel for every minute I've spent on the state of Tennessee, the state of Texas, the program, the state of USC program, uh, I would be a very rich man over the last year talking about those schools. Um, but let me frame it to you this way. Can Tennessee and you and South Carolina both be good at the same time? Can they both be maxing out? I'm going I'm to assume Georgia and and Florida are being competently run and are near their ceilings. Maybe not at their ceilings, but at least near their ceilings. There's only so many wins to go around. Can South Carolina and Tennessee both be really good at the same time?
1: I'm going to say not if Clemson and North Carolina are or anywhere near their current forms. And, and even NC State, who had a nice year this year, and, and you know for the most part under Dave Doran have been pretty decent. I, I think you need to, if you're going to have one of those teams elevate, they probably need the other one to be down because you need to beat the other one in recruiting. For a couple players a year, mm-hmm. if you're splitting them, I, I don't see, I don't see how you rise to the top of the division. Um, South Carolina's expectations have never really made sense to me personally, but they look at Clemson and say, if Clemson can do it, why why can't we? I, that's probably a longer podcast.
0: Well, well, Tennessee at least has a history. I, I am a big believer of you will be what you have been. Um. So I think tradition and history matters. And if I have a history of at Tennessee that shows some peaks and some valleys, but some very high level success, I believe that you can get back to that unless it's, unless it's from the stone ages. I mean, like Minnesota used to win national championships. That was a long time ago, but if you have something that looks like a history of high level success, not that far into your rearview mirror, I feel like it's attainable. Again, when you look into the weeds of of South Carolina, yes, there is some high level success fairly recently under Spurrier, but that was the anomaly over the course of that, that program over the history of that program.
1: There's no doubt. Um, I I think Tennessee can be good again. I just don't know how soon it will happen. Uh, if I'm Tennessee, and I, I said this on, on the Cover Three podcast on, on the CBS Sports College, you know, College Podcast Network, I would put almost all my sanctions front loaded because you're probably going to be playing at less than than 85 this year anyway. Just given the, the number of transfers you've had out, and I would just bite the bullet and, and go less ahead. Less than 85.
0: And, I think they'd be lucky. They're going to be lucky to have 65 at this point. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, why not say, all right, we're going to self-impose 15 scholarships this year.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, like, it's kind of one of those
1: things where on paper, it looks real harsh. In reality, you're denying scholarships to kids who weren't there anyway. So it doesn't even hurt you at all. Um, then I think you can bounce back fairly quickly. The, the problem is that that Florida has been a much better program than you for you know, about 30 years now, overall. And Georgia seems to finally have its act together in recruiting in a way that is a clear step up from, from where Mark Rick had it. You also have to play Alabama every year yeah. in uh, an unfortunate cross-division draw, which mm-hmm. I know is a rivalry, but hasn't really been competitive in over a decade. So like, wh- wh- what's, what's your ceiling there? I mean, are, how often are you ever going to win two of those three games? It's, it's not often. Well, so I think they can get back within a couple
0: of years. Yeah. I mean, your idea is that Sabin's not going to be there forever. <laughs> like you what? just keep selling the fact that Sabin's not going to be there forever. You made an interesting point. Uh, let me, let me hit on that when you mentioned that maybe self-imposing relatively soon might not be a bad idea. Um, cause I had somebody describe these, the Tennessee job as two rebuilds. You're going to have the front end where we're going to have complete and total, total roster turnover next year. Next year is shot next year will almost be impossible to salvage. And then when the NCAA stuff cycles through, you might be looking at two to three, maybe two to three years out when now sanctions kick in and you have a roster of kids who can one-time exception all bail out on you because, oh, well, wait, we're not going, like we've made a little progress, but now we're not going to a bowl game and now we're getting hit with, with, with scholarship sanctions. So, when you talk about like Josh Heupel might be four years and out, hopefully, you know, maybe four years and out, it's almost like that's what you were selling to a coach. You were selling to a coach, listen, like, you're not going to have one rebuild. You're going to have two. And there's almost no way you're getting through this. I mean, do, do you think Heupel thinks like really believes he's getting through it? Um, listen, I think they're all super competitive and, uh, and are built to believe that they can do it, that they will have a plan that can make it work. So yes, I think I don't think you step into that thinking that you you believe i think you to be that position to have that position, you think you're smart, right? you think you have the sure. ability to do it um I don't know I mean if I shot him up with shoot Serum, maybe not <laughs> uh, his agent
1: though the guy telling him to take the deal uh is is not predicating the the, the acceptance of that deal on getting through to your five six seven it's, uh, uh, let's look at the guaranteed money
0: that no doubt. I I have to think an agent is is realistic enough to think that listen, even if this doesn't work out, even if in four years, because the other thing too is you can you you can sell me on oh we're going to be patient we're going to be patient that's quite frankly bullshit I, I don't curse on the podcast that often but it was <laughs> per- particularly uh, relevant here. They had patience with Jeremy Pruitt right up until he lost to Georgia State to, to, to start year two, year two. So even after he won six games in a row and it seems like they, they, had, they had righted the ships, he had already poisoned the water there because they had known that Georgia State loss was in the back of their minds. And in three, you know, within three years, Jeremy Pruitt is gone. So patience does not truly exist. Patience means we're going to give you a mulligan on year one. And if we're not seeing at least trajectory, at least like things on the upswing by mid-year two, we're already pretty much done with you.
1: There's no doubt. I, I, if I'm Tennessee, I, I front-load this stuff, um, just with with the idea that like I, we need to be much better in, in four to five years. I I don't want this to be a, a slow bleed. Just rip the band-aid, go really bad the next two three years, and, and then start to the build. I, I think you nailed it as far as the two rebuilds. Uh, that's that's a really smart thought.
0: I'm not. Of the well, I stole that it that from same somebody. Same coach so, will yeah. do both
1: rebuilds.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I I would agree with you too. I think the second rebuild ends up on somebody. Essentially, ends up on somebody else's uh, plate. So the last thing I want to hit you on, Bud, and I appreciate you taking a lot of time with me here today, is your former colleague Barton Simmons. So Barton was hired by Clark Lee, the new Vanderbilt coach. Uh previously the defensive coordinator at Notre Dame uh in basically a player personnel role and it's something that we've seen a lot of and we even mentioned it when Barton was on the podcast with you in December about how you know something we've seen a lot of in basketball kind of going the media to um school to you know to NBA that that transition to to front office transition and I don't know. I don't, like, I don't know if this is a trend, but A, congratulations to Barton. Um, because he is a great guy and deserves it. Um, but do you, do you think this could be something that? we start seeing a little more of the media, the guys who do what you do uh, and maybe are even like more deeper into the analytical side as opposed to, though I, I don't want to take away from that. You definitely do that, but you've sort of entrenched yourself a little more on the editorial side at this point when your role. Um But when you look at, do you think this could be a little bit of a trend where we might see schools start dipping into your ranks? I, I
1: certainly think it could. Um I don't think it'll be as fast as it's been in the other sports, but if you look at it, uh, the the sport that we all recognize as being first to sort of embrace new methods and think outside the box and uh, embrace analytics w- was baseball, right? I mean, they they were into the advanced stats 20, 30 years ago. Uh, k- football is is nowhere close. Basketball, sort of in the, in, in the middle ground there. Um, so, if you look at sort of the the pace of people who work on the media side being hired, th- that trend sort of mirrors the, the adoption of different ways of thinking about the game and running teams as far as the timeline of those other sort of sports. I mean, baseball was the first to do it, and then they were also the first to hire a lot of guys. I mean, if, if you look at fan graphs, it seems like half of Fangraphs staff has been hired away yeah. by baseball teams at some point up until, like, the point where yesterday, uh, Kevin Goldstein is back at fan graphs. He actually left the – he was let go by the Astros, and now he's back.
0: Oh, wow. The, the, it's kind of cycled back. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't notice that. Yeah, that's
1: interesting. Yeah. Um, you know yeah. the NBA w- was, was was sort of the middle ground there. I, I definitely think there's a place for it in college. Um, the thing is, you know, there's been opportunities I, I know for for certain guys to to do this, but not at the level that that Barton got. You know, Barton got a like he's the director of recruiting at an SEC school, mm-hmm. and a lot of times I think you could maybe maybe get there if you were willing to take like an assistant spot at a low level P5 or at a G5, but those jobs don't pay that well.
0: Yeah. It's almost like an and, analyst, but even a low level analyst kind of level entry level job.
1: Right. Exactly. So if you have to go take like a 70% pay cut mm-hmm. after already being established in your industry as somebody who's, you know, in their early thirties, that's a hard sell to your wife and kids. Hey honey, we're going to go move to this college town and the job security is thing about zero just so I can work my way up the ladder. You see what I'm saying? So like, like yeah. I think, the, the relationship that he had with Clark Lee and, and, and Clark's knowledge of Barton's knowledge of the game, because he knows how he thinks, he, he knows the, the type of hard worker that he is, and the insight that he has into the recruiting process and all the contacts that he has, I, I think that made it a unique situation. So I don't think it's going to become a huge trend anytime soon.
0: Yeah. And just, you know, listen, journalism doesn't pay that great, but at a certain point in the coaching profession, and if we look at what that, that. Those positions as a sort of an offshoot of the coaching profession, that's a grind too. I mean, journalism, again, can be kind of a grind as far as like starting out with very low pay and, you know, internships and things along those lines. But entry level into the coaching profession, I mean… You know, again, low level schools or places, even bigger schools where they're just sort of stacking analysts and interns and GAs. I mean, you're basically making nothing. So, so you're right. I mean, you're talking about relatively established journalists who are at least making a decent living and then asking them to take a step back into jobs that are barely paying anything. You know, again, you're looking, you're almost like a grad assistant to a certain degree.
1: Exactly. Yeah, guys. Guys of that age don't take those jobs for yeah. the most part. I mean, like regardless of whether you're coming from the media side or not.
0: Bud Elliott is from twenty four seven Sports. What's your title there again, Bud?
1: Uh, I'm the origination editor, head of podcasts, and national recruiting analyst. Yeah,
0: Bud's so, got a lot. Bud's got a lot of Bud's got a lot on his plate there, and he was he was nice enough to talk to me the day before signing day. Because even though it's not what it used to be, it's not the circus that it used to be. I'm sure it's still a busy time for you guys. So appreciate your time and effort and knowledge, Bud. It's always fun to talk to you. Uh, yeah, most of your like favorite baseball team is like run by FanGraphs guys, right? Like the the, the yeah. Rays are pretty much all FanGraphs at this point, right? <laughs>
1: It is. I mean, I'm actually wearing my raised hat right now, so it was, uh, it was well-timed. <laughs>
0: excellent. Excellent. Uh, always great talking to you, bud. Thanks for all the knowledge, and hopefully we'll get to catch up again real soon. Enjoyed it, dude. And now, three and out. First down. One of the biggest prizes in the transfer portal appears to be heading to Florida. Eric Gilbert, a former five-star tight end who played a freshman year last season at LSU, posted on social media that he's joining the Gators. Gilbert had okay numbers last year for an LSU offense that ran through three quarterbacks, but there is a lot to like here. No doubt he liked what Florida did last season with star tight end Kyle Pitts, and the selling point was surely you could be next. Florida also landed a former five-star running back, DeMarcus Bowman, who left Clemson after last season. While Florida says goodbye to a ton of offensive production with Kyle Trask, Pitts, Kadarius Toney on the way to the NFL, plus a few other excellent receivers, there are a lot of interesting pieces for Dan Mullen to work with between the newcomers and holdover quarterbacks Emery Jones and Anthony Richardson. As good as Florida was offensively this past season, there is room for some growth or at least some evolution with a more mobile quarterback. Dan Mullen likes to use the quarterback in the running game. That's always been his thing, but it wasn't necessarily Kyle Trask's thing. In the pipeline, though, you have quarterbacks with those skills who should provide more of that next season, plus another potential game changer at tight end, Gilbert. Second down, to say Arizona's hiring of Jed Fish was met with skepticism, both nationally and locally, would be a bit of an understatement. Fish is a longtime college and NFL assistant with a good reputation and good connections, but the results have never really stood out. He hasn't been part of particularly successful teams or notably exceptional offenses. He does seem to be putting together an interesting staff at Arizona, including former Michigan defensive coordinator Don Brown, though I do think it's fair to wonder if the style Brown likes to play just went stale at Michigan or if he can still be successful in a new conference. What caught my eye, though, was the recent hire by Fish of Teddy Bruski, the former Arizona great and New England Patriots player, as senior advisor to the coach. What exactly that job becomes relative to the title is hard to say. I think it could be in the short term a way to address what I know was a really big concern among folks close to Arizona. The program has lost its identity and has no brand. Listen, Arizona's football history is not illustrious. It's the only Pac-12 school among those that were in the Pac-10 that has never played in the Rose Bowl. Bruschi was part of maybe Arizona's most famous teams, the desert swarm defenses of the mid to late 1990s. I think Fish keeping former Arizona great Chuck Cecil on staff and bringing in Bruschi is an encouraging acknowledgement that he needed to figure out a way, not just to build a program, but to restore a brand in Tucson. Now we'll see if he can coach and recruit. Third down, right before we started recording this podcast, news came that EA Sports is bringing back its college football video game. Now, that doesn't do much for me, but I know a whole bunch of folks who love college football really love that game, and it's really huge news for them. The door is open for a new NCAA video game. Now that it's apparent, college athletes will be permitted to earn money from their names, images, and likenesses. EA Sports has set no timetable on the game's return, which is good because currently there is no timetable for NIL rules to be in place for college athletes. The NCAA was ready to put some legislation in place last month, but that got put on pause due to Department of Justice scrutiny. There are federal bills related to NIL and college athletics being put forth in Washington, a bunch of state laws making their way through the system around the country, and, oh, by the way, a Supreme Court case coming up in the spring which could make everything we just mentioned moot. But the video game So Many Fans Love appears to be on its way back. The question still to be worked out is, who ends up getting paid for it? That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Sarah McCrory, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Westwood One Podcast. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.